I do hope you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you will join together in turning to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to start chapter 2 this week. While you're turning there, I'd like to just reflect real briefly. I did not know that second to last song that we sang. I'm guessing there were numbers of you that did not know that second to last song we sang. But it sure sounded to me like a song that I ought to get to know. I don't know if you paid attention to the message of that song, but the encouragement that just kept getting driven deeper and deeper, if you were paying attention to the words we were singing, was the necessity for us to lay everything down on the altar, the necessity for us to surrender ourselves completely and utterly to God. And that's a message that uh, I, don't, uh, I, don't, I know I will not uh, get to the end of until the day that God calls me home into his very presence. First Thessalonians chapter two, we're gonna read through the first six verses. This is gonna be actually, I, I, the way it's, it's feeling or sensing to me, it's gonna be the first part of a two-part little, the, the next week's message is gonna to go together, so we're gonna to have to kind of bring some things together as we uh, do a two-week two thing. I can't cover all of it in one week. So let's read together First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, and we're going to jump in and see where the Lord takes us with uh, the message that Paul is unfolding to these Thessalonian believers, and I would tell you is unfolding to us as we study God's inspired word. Paul continues his letter, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Last week we looked at what Paul's thanksgiving to the Thessalonian believers and his thanksgiving centered on how they responded to the gospel. If you remember that from last week, we talked about how the fact that Paul says, when I think of all of you, I'm thankful and I thank God every time that I think of you. I pray to him and I thank him that when we came to you, that the gospel came to you and you received it. The gospel came in word, it came in power, it came with the Holy Spirit, and it came with full conviction, and you responded to it. I can testify to your, what, what, those, th- those three words that he gave, I test the phrases, I can testify to your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope. I saw the results, and he said, all of that was demonstrated by what you did when the gospel came. You turned to God from idols, and you served the living God and you are waiting for his son to appear. Jesus Christ, our blessed hope, the one who is gonna save us or shelter us, has kept us from uh, the wrath that is to come. That's Paul's response or his reflection on their side of things, if I can put it that way. This week, I think we're gonna see the other side of those things. He's gonna start talking about when they came, here's how we came. And in doing so, he wants to remind these Thessalonian believers 
that God did indeed visit them. They did receive the gospel and the gospel is effective, but he's also helping demonstrate to them what it looks like for them to begin to do this. Remember, he said, when you received it, you became imitators of me and of the Lord, but you also immediately became an example to those people around you. And if that's gonna be true, he says, I want you to see things from our side of things. When we came with the gospel, what did that look like? And to help us see that both of those sides have to be true if we want to see gospel fruit taking place. In other words, we have to see what we're going to cover over the next, this week and next week, Lord willing, about when the gospel comes and how that's to be. And we have to see the other side, the willing, ready reception to hear the gospel. I've entitled my message, Entrusted with the Gospel, because uh, that's going to be the heartbeat of, of where we're going to be the, this week and next week. But I want to make one uh, point, one thing out because I like to do these kinds of things. I think it's really important for us, for you, as we begin to read, as we read Scripture, not begin, you've been reading Scripture before, but as you read Scripture, to pay attention to things that are repeated. And that's just a tool to help you understand what's important. And Paul repeats a phrase several times in this text. He begins right in the very beginning. I'm going to put the, the, word, the, the first verse up there. That's going to be actually the main point we have as I'm supporting that he's talking about his side of when we came to you. He says, for you yourselves know, brothers. And when he says, you yourselves know, he actually says that same phrase again uh, down in chapter five, or in verse 5, not chapter 5, verse 5. Actually, if you're paying attention, it's the thing he's going to bring through the whole letter. I went through and counted, and depending on how loosely you define his words of, of you know this already, or I'm reminding you, or remember what I said to you, he's going to use this phrase or this kind of phrase at least a dozen times in these five chapters that we have in this short letter, at least a dozen. You could go upwards of 15 or 16, potentially 17, depending on, again, how loosely you draw his, I'm reminding of you, I'm, I'm bringing back to mind, or you know this already. This actually represents a function of what is happening in our church gatherings all the time. It ought to be. You know, for many things, and you maybe hear me say things like this often, that I'm often not bringing some brilliant insights that you have never heard before. I don't think so. Because many of you have walked with Jesus and are very good students of the word in many ways. So often it's more of a case of, let me remind you of things you already know. You already know what God is like in many ways. Now, we don't have it perfectly figured out. You already know what God wants from you in many ways. You don't have that perfectly figured out too. But let me remind you. Let me call to remembrance. You already know these things. Let's walk in them. He says, you know, brothers and sisters, that's what that, that phrase is actually an all-encompassing term. You know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, was not empty, was not fruitless work. Of course, some of the most discouraging, frustrating things can be when we pour ourselves out and it appears to be fruitless. It appears to be empty. It appears to have no effect. I believe it's why Paul started with helping them see the fruit of the gospel in their lives before he said these words to remind them, you know the gospel worked. It, it took effect. You turned away from idols and you turned to God. I have no doubt, I, don't, I was not there, so I cannot verify these kind of things, but I have no doubt that for some people in Thessalonica, that was an instant thing. 
that when Paul came and began to preach the gospel, they instantly said, we must put this stuff away and take on these things. But I have no doubt also that there were some of those people that were a little more, it was not so instant. It took some time to work these things out. I say that because I know the reality for us. We're no different than they are, and by extension, they're no different than we are. Sometimes when you hear something and it clicks and you say, I, I know, without a doubt I have to change this. Sometimes it's more like God taking it out of our tightly clenched fist as he peels back our fingers one by one and says, get rid of that thing in your life, right? So Paul is reminding them the gospel had its effect. Our coming to you was not in vain, but I wanna stop for a moment. You're gonna hear this phrase a lot and lest you hear it and your eyes glaze over and you think, yeah, we know all about this. I wanna remind us that we cannot ever move away from the centrality of Jesus and the gospel in this letter and in our lives, but in this letter. So far, we've been covering that almost exclusively, and it's going to continue to run through this entire letter. But one of the reasons Paul can say that it did not come in vain when the gospel, when we came to, we did not come in vain, it wasn't in emptiness, was because it was based on the truth of who Jesus was and what he did. He really did come into the world. He really did live. He really did give his life. He really did die. He really was brought back to life. He really did ascend, and he really is coming again. It's the truth of the gospel. Paul said this in a later letter to the Corinthians. He said, if Christ has not been raised, if the, if the gospel isn't true, then our preaching is in vain, and in fact, your faith is in vain. But thank the Lord that he says, you yourselves know, brothers, that when we came to you, it was not in vain. Let me share with you two things this morning why Paul can say very faithfully, very boldly, very uh, confidently that when we came, it was not in vain. The first sub-point I have here, and again, you have a handout on the backside kind of tracking along here. Everything's there. It's in verse uh, two. He says, one of the reasons I tell you that when we came, it was not in vain, and I want you to pay attention to these things because he's at this point not basing on the success of the message although he talked about that last week, he's basing it simply on, as we're gonna find out, his obedience to the Holy Spirit. When we came, he said, we had boldness despite the opposition we faced at Philippi. Now remember when we, the very first week, maybe you don't remember this, but if you go back and know your, your Acts stuff, uh, the very first week I read through this and I said, they were in Philippi first and then right after Philippi, they dropped down and came to Thessalonica. And if you know, what, well, what, maybe just so that you guys can make sure you're paying attention and I know you're paying attention, what happened in Philippi? When Paul was in Philippi, what happened? Give me, a, give me a, just a, a short sentence of something that happened in Philippi. He was thrown in jail. Does that sound like a great time? No. By the way, was Paul happy with that? Was Paul happy with that? Well, he was singing in jail, but what was his response when he was taken out of jail? Anybody know? What? He said, well, first of all, part of it was because of how they did, how they did it, right? Because they took him and they beat them publicly and they put him in jail and God made so they could have walked away and they said, no, we're staying right here. We're saving the jailer's life and his family. We're bringing them all to salvation. And the next morning they come and they say, hey, I think we might have been a little wrong. Could you just quietly leave town? And he said, no way. We are Roman citizens. You publicly beat us. And now you want to send us away quietly? Luke was writing Acts and brought it up. I would suggest to you that when Paul says this in this letter, it's still in his mind, right? 
he's still aware that things didn't go like I wish they would have. Things didn't, that, that was not, I was not really a big fan of Philippi. But he says, nevertheless, though you know what I faced in Philippi, and actually they know what he faced in Thessalonica himself, yet, right? Because remember, he wasn't there very long. And the crowd began to stir, and they quickly sent them on their way. Though you know the conflict that I faced, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Now, this is one of those phrases I think is worth our time to just sort of piece through and pick apart and spend time with some of the individual words. Because it's really easy to be like, oh, I know what the sentence says, and so we're going to move on. But Paul does some really important things. Of course, the word boldness is key because there's opposition to happen at Philippi. There's opposition to happen at Thessalonica. He says, but we had boldness. But who did they have boldness in? They had boldness in God, right? It's not like Paul was saying, but since we are such brave, courageous people, we soldiered on. No, he says, we had boldness and confidence in God. That's why we kept doing it. Our trust was in God. Our faith was in God. We took Jesus at his word when he says, don't be afraid when you get drugged in front of the authorities about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you what to say in that moment. We trusted God. We took God at his word, and it gave us boldness. This is why our coming was not in vain, because we were looking to him, not to what was happening around us. But notice what else Paul does. Look carefully at the words. What does he say? We had boldness in our God. You see what he does? Our God. This is a Jewish man to a primarily Gentile church. We had boldness in our God, because what else is he doing to them then? He's saying, if I could trust God in the face of opposition, and I could be bold in my proclamation of the gospel, and it's our God, guess what that means? So can you. Right? So can you. Because it's the same God. It's our God. You see, it would have been different had he said, we were courageous, because then they would have thought, well, that Paul guy, is pretty, he's pretty solid, but I could, never, I could never drum up that kind of courage. It would have even been different to say, I had faith in my God. And they could have said, yeah, but that was the God of the Jews. Look at the Old Testament and all the things that was written in there about what God was like. So I have no doubt. That, but for us, I don't know. And instead, he says, we had boldness in our God so we could declare to you the gospel of God. The good news of God that we could perform or do evangelism. That's what that word means, evangelism. It's good news of God. And we did so in the midst of, what's that next word? I didn't put it on the screen, but what's that next word? We did so in the midst of much conflict. In the ESV is the word conflict. This is why we needed boldness, right? This is why he needed boldness and much conflict. That's an interesting word. The Greek word is the word agon, which you don't need to know that, A-G-O-N. You don't need to know that word necessarily. It's actually an interesting word because it refers to an assembly or a group of people, but it's very specific about what it means by that because it's actually based on the Greek word to lead. So it's a, a group of people assembled together for one purpose, and the group of people assembled together to watch some kind of contest. Think of Colosseum in Rome. A group of people brought together to watch some kind of conflict or contest taking place. So Paul does something very, very key right here. He says, here's the picture I want to paint for you that you have in your mind when I talk to you about these kind of things. 
We came, despite the opposition to Philippi, despite the stuff that was happening in Thessalonica, we came, we had boldness to de- in God, in, in our God, to declare to you the gospel of God, and it was in a public setting. It was with people watching. That's what the word, that word conflict, all that entails. It was with people. This was not a private thing. We did not sneak away to people's houses and subversively try to start some kind of underground revolution. We did so very intentionally in front of people. It's almost as if he's suggesting that the way the gospel goes forth in the midst of opposition is in itself a way to lead people to this gospel. Did you catch that? It's almost as if Paul is suggesting that the way the gospel goes forth in front of people and publicly in front of people is actually one of the means God uses to draw people to that gospel. In much conflict, in much contest. Now, I thought it might be helpful to just share with you a few times, a few ways that the same word agon is used in the New Testament, because it's not actually always translated the same in most of the English Bibles. First of all, I want you to see that this conflict may be an external conflict. When Paul writes the Philippians, he writes these words, and pay attention to these words, because he's very uh, very, uh, intentional with them. It has been granted, that's the word grace, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Where was Paul at when he wrote to the Philippians? Anyone know? Where was Paul at when he wrote to the Philippians? I think you might have said. He was in Rome. He was imprisoned. He was chained. He was in chains. And he says, get this, he has the audacity to write to these Philippians and write this letter all about joy and how they should be joyful in all things. He repeats it all the time through that letter. And he says, by the way, in God's grace, in my paraphrase, in God's grace, God in his infinite grace has given you the grace that you should, for the sake of Christ, not only believe in Jesus, we understand grace of God in that context, that we can believe in Jesus, but that you could also suffer for Jesus, that you're engaged in the same kind of conflict, the same kind of external demonstration of your faith that I am, that I have been, and you, see, you know that I still am. That's an external conflict, right? Because there's external opposition against Paul. Now, he uses the exact same word in Colossians when he writes to them. And he says, I want you to know how great a struggle or conflict or agon I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. In this case, I don't think he's talking about an external conflict, is he? He's talking about an internal conflict. I'm struggling for you. He refers to this in one of his other letters. I think, I didn't look at the reference. I think it's in 2 Corinthians. He refers to how, on, the, on top of all the external things he's suffered, how it weighs on him as he thinks about the churches and the believers and, and the struggle that they're having for faith. And, 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 and he's concerned about them. There's an internal weight he carries with, with caring for people. So this conflict could be Internal. When Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, and he's handing off things to him, there's another place he uses this word. He instructs him in 1 Timothy 6, 12, that he should fight the good fight of faith. One is in verb form, one is in noun form, but it's the same word. Fight the good fight of faith. When he writes his second letter to Timothy, he uses the exact same phrase, reflecting upon his own life and journey. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This conflict 
that we're engaged in? Do you feel like your life is a conflict sometimes? Do you like feeling like your life is a conflict sometimes? Come on. Y'all just sitting there? I don't like it, right? I don't like it. But can you see from the verses that we're reading this morning that when you feel like your life is in conflict of some kind, it's not entirely out of God's plan for you to be in that place, to have this struggle of being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a public setting. You know, it's exactly the trick of the enemy that when things get tough in our life, we want to run and hide so that no one knows what's going on. And it's exactly the opposite of what Paul is trying to talk about this morning. You know why we do that? Because we're selfish and we're arrogant. That's why. Because we don't like people to know that we're suffering and we want to feel sorry for ourselves. Maybe you don't. That's why I do it. One more, by the way, that flushes it out, I think, when... Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews began chapter 12. What we know is chapter 12, one of these powerful verses. Many of us know this verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's chapter 11. He just took us through what we call the faith chapter. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Look at this word. The race that is set before us. You know that word race is the same word that was just used in this text for conflict. Let us run with endurance the conflict, the contest, the struggle in a public place that is set before us. This is the call to faithfulness, brothers and sisters. We don't live our faith quietly. We don't hide in corners and hope no one notices us. Now, notice I'm not saying we don't, we don't become obnoxious about it either. But our faith is to be lived in a public setting. Jesus said that, right? No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. That wouldn't make any sense. Now, as Paul reflects on how in the middle of this pressure and conflict and this, 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 his, 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 where there was this contest going on and how he publicly uh, proclaimed the gospel, he proclaimed the gospel of God because he had boldness in, in their God together. As he does that, he again presents us with a little triplet because he says, when I gave this appeal, when I came to you and I proclaimed this gospel, let me just remind you of the motivations that I came with. And, or actually, it's kind of a negative because he says, these are the things I did not come with. I did not, my appeal did not spring from error. I was not being factually incorrect. I told you the truth. I gave you testimonies of why it was true. I told you, if you go back to read in Acts chapter 6, he, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 17 when he was in Thessalonica, then he actually does that. I mean, Luke actually records that, that he talked about who Jesus was and that we've seen him. And there's people who can testify to having seen him. They were still alive, by the way. They could go check with those people had they wanted to, had they had access to them. Now, they lived some geographic distance apart, but they could have had they wanted to. I did not appeal to you. I did not give you this... Uh, this gospel, I didn't proclaim it boldly in air. I did not proclaim it boldly out of some kind of impure motivation. I didn't have some kind of mixed motivation there. I was not hoping to gain something out of this myself. There was no impurity involved. On the third one, he says, I did not do so in any attempt to deceive anyone. 
It was not my goal. I was, he was being vulnerable. He was being transparent. Whatever words you want to use modern day, but written back to there, he said it just like that. He said, when I came to you and I proclaimed the gospel of God boldly because I had confidence in our God, I did so. I didn't, I didn't come out of, out of air. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to mislead people. I didn't want to do it impurely. I, didn't, I, didn't want to, I wasn't trying to gain anything out of this. I simply told you the truth and exhorted you to see and asked the Holy Spirit to reveal that truth to you. As I consider, I have two questions I want to bring to us today, and one of them is going to be coming right here. But as I consider the fact that the premise of Paul's coming to Thessalonica not being in vain started with the bold proclamation of the gospel of God, it begs of me and of us this question, do I know the gospel of God? You see, before I can in any way exhort any of us that we should be willing to boldly proclaim the gospel of God because we can trust who God is and we can do so despite whatever conflict might be out there, we have to make sure we actually know the gospel of God. Some of you know this already about me. I think I've shared this story already. Several years ago, I was in India, and we were walking through a village. I think I've shared this story. I'm not going to go into detail. We were walking through a village. I had a chance to share the gospel with someone through an interpreter, interpreter with a lady. And I realized in that moment that it, it, I, it didn't just, like, come out of me. I stumbled around and fumbled around and generally made a mess of things, I think. Thankfully, it was through a translator, so he could just cover for me and share the gospel beautifully, I'm sure, with this lady. But I realized that that was not something that just sort of rolled off of me and this was not just like, you know, when I was 20 years old. This was, I think, in 2019 when we were in India, which means I was, well, I won't tell you how old I was. It was a couple of years ago. That's fine. I was around 40, right? I was 39 years old probably at that time. Yeah, I would have been 39. I was not okay with that, by the way. And I made it my endeavor from that moment to not be caught flat-footed in that place again that I would know the gospel very clearly and I could say it very succinctly to any time and I forced myself to practice. Some of you I might have practiced with, my children I practiced with, children at the Haven I practiced with. I've done it a few other times with other places God has, but to, because I was like, I, I, if, I, if I'm gonna be able to encourage or I wanna be able to say these things, I have to be able to say, know the gospel of God, right? Do I, do you know the gospel? We're gonna come back to some of these questions. I'm gonna fill in some of those gaps, hopefully next week if I can. But I wanna to move to the next verse because the second reason Paul gives, I think, first of all, he says we came and we boldly proclaimed the gospel. But he is gonna talk about something that's, I think, very key as we continue to dig into the power of the gospel and why it had the effect that it had on the Thessalonians. He said, we have been approved. I'm jumping kind of in the middle of verse four there. But he said, we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, and so we speak. And he goes on with some other things, but I want to stop there again because I want to just take time to let us work through that phrase. We have been approved by God, Paul speaking. We've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And I would tell you, he thought this is a, he's making an, I don't know if it's an argument, but he, he's, he's making a logical following on that. If we have been approved by God and are entrusted with the gospel for that reason, 
That's why they spoke. Approved. The Greek word is dokimadzo, which means to test something, to test the metal of something. If you have a stick and you want to see how strong it is, you have to test it, right, to know if it's going to break or not, know if it'll hold your weight or do the job you expect it to do. When you want to test something, you have to put it under some kind of stress, right? Because otherwise it won't be tested. But the implication of dokimadzo is that when something is tested, it's approved. It's, it, it passes the test. That's actually, what, that's actually the implication of that word. So it's not just the test itself. It's the implication that it's been, it's passed the test. So Paul uses that word. He says, we've been approved by God. We've been tested and have passed. And when that happened... Then we were entrusted with the gospel. This is a phrase that I want to have hang in our heads for some time, in our hearts for some time. To be entrusted with the gospel, because we're going to have to unfold what all this means. But if we are entrusted with something by its inherent nature, listen carefully. If we have been entrusted with something by its inherent nature, it is not ours, but it's been given to us. Right? I don't, I don't become entrusted with things that I already own. You understand this, right? When I'm entrusted, if I'm to be entrusted with something, it is to say it's not mine, but it's been given to me. And, of course, the word entrusted carries with it that there's trust engendered, that there's expectation engendered in that, that there's something that's supposed to come out of that, and that there's a, 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 a uh, accountability that's going to be there with what am I going to do with that, right? I wouldn't tell you, hey, Bridger, you're sitting right here. I'm going to entrust you with $5,000. And when I do that, you would know right away it's not your $5,000, right? It's mine. But you would also know that I'm probably going to be checking with what you're doing about that because I didn't give it to you. Like I didn't gift it to you. I entrusted you with it. You're going to expect that sometime I'm probably going to come back and say, Bridger, what's happened with my $5,000? Did you do something good with it? Did it grow? Did it shrink? Were you irresponsible with it? Did you hide it? Did you invest it? Of course, you're drawing parallels, I'm sure, to this parable that Jesus said, right? Parable of the talents. Paul says, we have been approved by God and we are entrusted with the gospel. And if that's true, if God tested us and he said, I'm entrusting with the gospel, then something has to come out of that. And that something is, so we speak. So it comes out of us. The gospel of God comes out of us. Now, he actually uses that word test again. Did you notice that? Because he says, I'm going to show you that I understand that it's not me. It's not an ownership thing. I, the gospel is not mine to take around and, and give to people. I'm going to say that in this way. When I came and I spoke, I did not do so to please man, but I did so to please God. And look at what word he uses. God who tests our hearts. Same word, dokimadzo. God who, he he uses a circular thing there because as you continue to, as you are entrusted with the gospel, I believe, by the way, I'm just gonna gonna sneak this in here. We're gonna dig into this probably more next week. I'm gonna sneak this in here. If you have come to sincere faith in Jesus Christ, that gospel has come to you in that way and you've received it, I think you've been entrusted with it then. But as you've been approved and entrusted with it, then there's the continual testing with what you're doing with it. God does test our hearts, and God knows, right? God knows whether those motivations that he just talked about, out of air, making an appeal out of air, or out of, uh, let me just go back so I get this exactly right, out of impurity, or out of any attempt to deceive. God knows our hearts. 
Again, to help you see that that word test, what, what Paul is referring to, let me just share a couple of Bible verses with you. You know these, I think, well, you're familiar with these. Maybe this one you're not, this reference, but you know the thought behind it. Psalm 44, 20 and 21, the psalmist says, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. He knows where your motivations really lie. He knows where your allegiances really are. Jeremiah said it this way, speaking for the Lord. He said, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. What do you think of verses like this? What do they do inside of you? How do you feel about them? Now, lest you think I'm only going to bring negative verses in this, there's a positive side to God knowing our hearts. Did you know that? When we are in Christ, there's a very positive side to God knowing our hearts. Paul wrote these words to the Romans when he says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He says, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, there's times when we can't say what's going on inside of here. But God knows. Praise God that God knows. It's not always a negative thing. God knowing our hearts is not always a negative. It's a good thing. In fact, I would suggest to you it ought to be a good thing. Because you know what? I make mistakes outwardly sometimes. My flesh still gets in the way sometimes, but I want God to know my heart because my heart is to serve Jesus, is to be right before him. I'm grateful he knows my heart. I actually rest all of my confidence and hope in this, that he knows my heart. Because if it's a test of good or bad, I'm not going to win. Because the Bible says very clearly that if I want to be saved by the law, by observing the law, I have to keep every part of it. And I haven't done that. Neither of you. Neither of any of us. Now, Paul is going to return to those three things he said. He, I've been calling the motivations. Maybe that's, I'm not sure if that's the correct way to look at that. But he says, we did not come, or my appeal did not spring from error, did not spring from impurity, did not come from an attempt to deceive. But now as he talks about God testing, talks about being entrusted with the gospel and recognizing it's not Paul's gospel, it's the gospel of God. He's sharing, he's been entrusted with it, so he's gonna speak boldly, he's gonna share it. He's gonna talk about the methods with which he did that. He said, when we came, we did not come, look at this, we didn't come with words of flattery. Now I think that ties back to the motivation of error or the, uh, he not, the appeal not coming from error, because I th maybe it's just his modern day thing, my way of looking back at what he's saying, but I think one of the things we're most guilty of is when we share the gospels, we tend to hedge the most on how desperately we need Jesus, how sinful we really are. Paul says, I didn't come, I didn't bring words of flattery. I didn't, I didn't come to you and say, you guys were so good that God saw fit to look down upon you and save you. He also probably didn't say, now that God has come and shown his light of, on you and has saved you, that things are going to be great, because look what the words he's using. We're leading in conflict, right? Our, our faith is on public display in front of opposition so that God's gospel may go forth with boldness. Remember, you became imitators of me and the Lord and examples to others. He said, I did not come, I did not come with words of flattery. I did not come with a pretext for greed, again, with impurity. I did not come hoping to gain anything. And Paul makes it clear. If you read the rest of his letters, you would know this to be true. He goes above and beyond to say, listen, I want you to know that I didn't expect a thing from you. I didn't take any money from you. When I was in your midst, I worked hard to provide for my own needs so that you could never say, well, all Paul wants is for us to pay his way. 
I did not come with a pretext for greed. I did not tell you the good news of Jesus Christ so that you could somehow make me rich. Now there's plenty of people that struggle with that these days. There's plenty of preachers that struggle with that these days. That might say I'm proclaiming the gospel but it's coming out of a pretext for greed. Notice finally he says I did not come also I did not share, I did not boldly proclaim, I did not do the, say the words I said so that I could seek glory from people, from you or from anybody. That is firmly tied back to his understanding that the gospel has been entrusted to him, it's God's gospel, and it's answerable to him only, which means I'm not here to build my own kingdom. The sincerity of the messengers of God's message comes in that way, whether they are willing to not build their own kingdoms or whether they're gonna say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm amassing my own group of followers. I'm building my own kingdom here. This is why I tell you, brothers and sisters, that you need to know this word and not just take my word for it. I don't want you, I hope you enjoy my preaching, I hope you do. I'm grateful for the, for the, for the, the comments and the, and, the, and the good reports and the, and the thanks that you give to me, I'm really, I really am. But I want you to not be here just because I'm here, or I want you not to believe what you believe just because I've told you that. I want you to know that the word of God and as Jesus who's revealed in here and the God who's revealed in here is true because you know him. I'm not interested in building my kingdom here. I'm interested in building God's kingdom because the gospel is about God's kingdom. It's his gospel. He has entrusted it to me. It's not mine. I will answer for it. I will answer with what I've done with what God has entrusted to me. So will you, by the way. Paul did not come with words of flattery. He did not come with a pretext for greed. He did not seek glory from people. Now, again, I'm gonna go back to the point I was making. He's been entrusted. He says that we've been approved by God, we've been entrusted with the gospel, and because of that, I spoke. I think the very natural, inherent question that begs to be asked of every one of us, if we're gonna just, it's gonna make the difference whether we read this letter and say, we can discuss what Paul was talking about, we can look at it in context, we can work our way through it, we can say, man, Paul was a stand-up guy, those Thessalonians really did a good job receiving the gospel, and move on. Or we can notice that these words have an effect on our lives today. But that question comes down to, I think, this question. What we do with it comes down to this question. Asking ourselves, have I been entrusted with the gospel? Is that something God has entrusted me with? And again, I'm guessing some of you already have answers in your mind. I'm gonna leave that for this week. I'm gonna trust that next week the Lord will allow as we go through the text to answer some of these things. Have I been entrusted with the gospel? I would tell you the point is very clear in Paul's text here. If I have been entrusted with the gospel, then I'm responsible for it in some way, for what I do with it. I'm not responsible for the gospel. I'm gonna make that clear. I'm responsible for what I do with that. So you probably know this already, but be careful how you answer that. If you will say, yes, I've been entrusted with the gospel, now you have some responsibility with what you do, with what you've been entrusted with. Notice when I say that, I'm not trying to get you to not acknowledge that and just be like, well, then I'm gonna say no. I'm getting you to understand what you're saying yes to. And it's gonna take me back to the first question then. Do you actually know the gospel of God? Do you know it in here? It's gonna become really key next week. Do you know it in here? Because we can proclaim, we can say all kinds of things, but if it's not here, 
we're not going to see the kind of dynamic that's taking place in Thessalonica when Paul comes and he declares the gospel of God to them. Do you know the gospel? Do you know it here? Do you know what to say? But do you know it here? Has it, has it had its effect in your life? Is the fruit of the gospel real in your life? Can you point to whether the fruit is evident, whether it's coming out of you? What are those fruits, you ask? Well, Scripture can tell us those things, but I suggest a really good list is one that's very familiar to us, right? Most of you can finish this verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is, what is it? Probably no one gets them because we're all saying at a different tempo, but <laughs> the reality is I'm asking you if you know them, so it's really not whether your neighbor, you can tell your neighbor what they are. I'm asking you whether you know them. I'm asking you whether they're fruits of your life, whether that's what's coming out of you. Do I truly know the gospel of God? Am I walking in that fruit? Am I displaying that fruit? And then what... What, what does that have? Well, we're going to leave all those things. We're going to hope that I'm going to trust that next week uh, we're going to be able to f- close the door on some of those things. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to pray. I'm going to leave. You're going to stand through the whole time. Hopefully you can stand for a little bit. I'm going to pray. And at the end of the prayer, I want you to read these verses with me as we've been closing with these verses. It's my benediction to you, but I want you to read them with me so that you can receive, if it, as it were, uh, the benediction that I'm reading to you. But I'm going to pray first. So, uh, God, we want to thank you. We thank you. We're so thankful and grateful for your word this morning. We're thankful that we see that we have the beneficiary, uh, we're the beneficiaries of uh, uh, scriptures that are recorded. We thank you so much. I thank you so much for the word of God that's recorded for us because we get to see these pictures emerge where Paul is writing to this group of believers that he spent time with. And he's reminding them of the things that they know, the things that they saw themselves. And we get to see this, this, this picture of how the gospel was received and how the gospel came. And it's not only for our encouragement, it's not only for us to, to sort of be like, oh, that's how it's supposed to be, but it's for us to live out ourselves. It's for us to see on display in the interactions in our own family lives that as pieces of the gospel are proclaimed that we are willing to receive them or that on the other side of things that we're willing to proclaim them. It's for us to live out here as within our church body. For every time we get together, there's those of us who need part of the gospel preached to us to say, this is the effect the gospel is supposed to have in your life. Can I remind you of that? And give us humility, Father, to receive that and to say, oh, I want to turn to you, God, from idols to serve you, the living and true God, and wait for Jesus appearing. Or perhaps we're on the other side of that equation again where we are here in the body and you want to use us. And though there may be some opposition, though there may be some conflict, though it may not be the thing we're most comfortable with, if I can even just use that phrase, may not be the thing we're most comfortable with, that you're asking us to have boldness in you, God, to proclaim the gospel of your gospel that you've entrusted us with to each other. And of course, God, this is true for us as a body as we interact with the world around us, perhaps more than any other way, that we as a body can see ourselves in a public forum with eyes on us, that our faith being lived out, our proclamation of the gospel, in fact, is furthered as it's lived out in the conflict or the contesting of Jesus' way, your way of doing things, God, and the world's way of doing things.
Help us to see next, as we look towards next week, the interplay between the words we say and the people we are. But God, we give you praise. We ask you to keep these words in our hearts and minds and to have, let them have an effect in us. Let the gospel have an effect in us. Let, let, let there be things that may be pointed out to us that are not producing fruit in us that we say, then I want to get rid of it. I want to turn away from it. I want to look to you, God. I want to serve you. I want to prepare myself and be ready for Jesus' return. Thank you, God. All this comes from you. And as a body together, God, we we want to take the words that you inspired Paul to write by your Holy Spirit. We want to take them to receive them as your benediction. So we today, in Jesus' name, say these words together. Say it with me, church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. In Jesus' name, go in peace this morning.